0: While Christians today are not under the Old Testament as a system of justification, the Old Testament is still of great value to you and I today. For as we find from the words of the great Apostle Paul so long ago, as he was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and wrote the Roman letter, he said in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. That we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And you remember, as the Apostle Paul, the very same author, inspired by the very same Holy Spirit of God, wrote to the young evangelist Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verses 16 and 17, when he said that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What Paul said there so long ago is this, that all things that are found in the 66 books of the entire Bible are God breathed. That all scripture comes from the very inspiration of God And when you and I pick up this grand old book today and we read what's found in God's Word, it is as if God, through the Holy Spirit, was speaking to us directly. The things that are found in God's Word are all those things that are God-breathed. And Paul said to Timothy that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is especially true with regard to the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are the 12 books of the last 12 books of the Old Testament Scriptures, and they begin with Hosea and end with the book of Malachi. I am convinced, though, today that those that are willing to study these books will, as one man said one time, and I'll just pass it on, They will be able to have their lives enriched as they increase, number one, their knowledge of God's holiness, His righteousness, His judgment, and His mercy. We will find our lives enriched as we increase our understanding of God's dealings in the nation of man. And finally, and certainly not least, we will find our lives enriched as we increase our appreciation for the Bible as a literary masterpiece but the question is who were the prophets first of all let me just say this under the old covenant under the law of moses they had different kinds of instructors of instructors and we'll just begin with moses since we've just mentioned his name moses was the lawgiver but also the bible says and teaches us and we can study from god's word that under the law of moses or under the old covenant There were priests, and the priests were administrators of the law. Then there were wise men, and wise men were those who gave counsel. Then there were psalmists, and the psalmists were the poets or sweet singers of Israel. And finally, there were the prophets, and the prophets were communicators of the word of God. Simply put, I'll just say this, that a prophet was a spokesman for another. Do you remember not long ago, probably about a month ago now, we spoke on a subject, or I preached a sermon in your hearing about the excuses that Moses made when God said, I've heard the cry of my people, their cry has come unto me, and I am going to deliver them from Egyptian bondage. But he said, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to send you, Moses, and you are going to speak to the people. And one of the excuses that Moses makes so long ago was this, I can't do it. I'm not the right man for the job. Surely I could not stand before man and communicate your will to them because I'm not an eloquent man. I am slow of speech. I am slow of tongue. But you know, God knew all that. God knew his shortcomings. God knew what he, was, uh, what he was able to do and knew his capabilities. So he said this. He said, there's going to be a spokesman for you, and his name is your brother, Aaron. In Exodus chapter 4, in verses 15 and 16, it says, And thou shalt speak unto him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth and with his mouth. And will teach you what you shall do, and he shall be thy spokesman unto the people, and he shall be even he shall be to thee instead of a mouth, and thou shalt be to him instead of God. The word prophet, as defined, I understand, literally means to boil up like a fountain. And these prophets, while they were under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, they were the spokesmen for God. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, you remember that Peter said, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You know, I love this. I'm going to pass it on. Something I read that somebody said one time. Maybe you've heard it. But a fellow said one time, there's two kinds of preachers. And I think this is true. It really is. And the two kinds of preachers are these. There's the good preacher and there's the poor preacher. And then he said, this is how you can tell between a good preacher and a poor preacher. It's not one who is eloquent in speech and one who's a great orator makes him a good preacher. And one who doesn't have great speaking ability makes him a poor preacher. No. He said that what makes a good preacher is one who has something to say while the poor preacher simply has to say something and that's the difference but then he said this there's a third and even higher class of preacher and that's the man who has something to say and it burns down deep within him and he can't stay put and he can't be still and he has to say it thus were the prophets of god jeremiah well represents this latter class As he explains his feelings. You remember his complaint in Jeremiah chapter 20 beginning in verse 7. Listen to these words. He said, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily, everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence, and I cried spoil." Because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention any more in his name. But notice what happened to Jeremiah. The very next words are these. But his word was in my heart. As burning fire shut up in my bones and I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. Thus. Were the prophets of God? Well, how are the prophets classified in the Bible? They're classified in two different classifications, and they are these: there were the oral prophets, and then there were the literary prophets. Well, it's quite obvious who would be the oral prophets and who would be the literary prophets, or what was the difference. Here's the difference: the oral prophets were still the spokesman for God, and they went out as foretellers and foretellers to convey the words of God that God wanted them to do so, but the oral prophets were the ones that did not bear any writings in their name. Simply put, they are these. I'll just give you a couple of examples, though we could cite a whole lot of them today. The prophet Elijah was one who fell under the category of of an oral prophet. The prophet Elisha, Nathan, Gad, and many, many others They were ones that were the spokesmen for God. It boiled up like a fountain within them, and they conveyed the word of God, but they did not have any writings bearing their names. Simply put, now we understand what a literary prophet is. A literary prophet are those that had writings that bore their names. And of those literary prophets, they are categorized in two different categories. The major prophets... And the minor prophets. But let's understand something today. When I say major prophets and I say minor prophets, it doesn't mean that the major prophets were more important than the minor prophets. And it does not mean that the minor prophets were inferior in any way by way of importance, by way of the man as the prophet, or even the message that was being conveyed. It does not mean that they were inferior to the major prophets. It simply is referring to the length of their writings. The major prophets were these. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel were the major prophets. And in the minor prophets, as we mentioned a moment ago, it's the last 12 books of the 39 books of the Old Testament Scripture, beginning with Hosea. And they were Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last 12 books of the Old Testament scriptures made up the minor prophets. Now today let's begin with the prophet Obadiah. I am convinced that this was written in the 9th century during the early Assyrian period in about 845 B.C. I also understand that it it is really probably unlikely to pin down for sure between these two dates but some say that in 586 BC that this letter was written or this book was written so long ago but I contend that it was the earlier date and I think context wise it supports that that would make this writing the earliest of all of the prophets of the minor prophets in 845 BC historically speaking you remember That this was during the period of the divided kingdom in Israel's history. To the north and to the east, the empire of Assyria was beginning to make its presence known in Israel. Let me just say this. Who was Obadiah? And I am convinced that it's not possible to know for sure who the prophet Obadiah was, though there are many names or many times when the word or name Obadiah is mentioned. Was it talking about Ahab's servant and so on? Was it talking about another uh, occasion in 2 Chronicles 17 and 7? We don't know. But one man said this about Obadiah. It's not necessary that we understand who the man was. What's necessary is we understand what his message was. And that's what we have. We find very little in God's word. In fact, we find nothing in God's word about this particular Obadiah that wrote this book so long ago let me just give you the message really quickly the message of this prophecy was simply this the fall of Edom and there's a reason for the fall of Edom it's going to be because of its sinful pride and let me just say this whatever was wrong back in 845 BC with regards to pride is going to be wrong with you and I today as we live in this Christian life It has always been wrong in fact you remember when Satan and a third of the host of heaven were cast out because of their sinful pride pride the Bible says goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall so why was Edom going to be brought down and destroyed why was judgment going to come on the people or the Edomites that dwelt in that land simply put because of their sinful pride, number one, and number two, because of their cruelty to Israel, their cousins. You know, those are two things and two themes that ring true today. You can't have any pride and be acceptable in the eyes of God, and you certainly cannot be cruel to your fellow man. Those were things that Jesus taught in the Christian dispensation before the church was established. Jesus preached about those things. All those things came into effect in Acts, the second chapter, when the church was established. And those things are wrong today as they were wrong so long ago. Here's more of the message. Zion would be exalted when Mount Esau or Mount Seir, which was the Edomite counterpart to Zion, would be cast down. And when that happens, that's going to happen when the rescued of Israel will be in Zion. Listen. For in it, the redeemed shall be found. Does that sound like something else that we know about? In Zion is where the redeemed would be found. There's a picture of something there that Obadiah wrote so long ago in 845 B.C. We'll get back to that in greater detail in just a little while. But the history of Edom. The people of Edom descended from Esau, Jacob's twin brother. This sibling rivalry between Edom and Israel, though, was found first in the twins in Esau and Jacob in their mother's womb. You remember in the 25th chapter of the book of Genesis, we find that the twins struggled in their mother's womb. You remember also before that, though, that Isaac entreated the Lord for Rebekah because Rebekah was barren. And the Bible says that she conceived, but the two twins, these two boys that were in her womb, We're struggling against each other, struggling together mightily, so much so that she asks God the question, she says, why is this so? Why do these struggle within me? And God said this, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And the Bible says that when they they were in their womb, they struggled. But one day they were delivered, and the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that, his brother came out holding on to Esau's heel, and they called him Jacob. And the Bible says that the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because of he did eat his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You know, this sibling rivalry continued one day when Jacob had sod pottage. The King James Version, I didn't reference other translations, but the King James Version says sod pottage. Now, what is that? That's just a fancy way of saying he boiled some stuff in a pot. I think, this, I think we need to look at the language of the things that transpired that day to have a really good understanding of just exactly the mindset of Esau with what he was willing to give up. All of a sudden, here comes Esau from the field, and he was faint. And he was faint so much so that he thought he was going to die. And he sees Jacob with this sod pottage, and he comes to him and says this. Get this. Give me that same red pottage. You know, there was nothing spectacular. There was nothing special about what he was cooking that day. It was the same red pottage that he had seen so many times before. But Esau was desperate, and he comes to Jacob, and he thinks he's going to die. He says, I faint. Give me some of that same red pottage. And Jacob thought, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna capitalize on this situation. I'm gonna capitalize on his weakness. And he said this, give me your birthright. Sell me your birthright in exchange for some of this pottage. And Esau said this, I'm dying anyway. I'm going to lose my life. I'm faint to the point of death. Then a birthright's really not gonna do me any good anyway. Deal done, give me the pottage. And he begins to eat it and so on and so forth. And the Bible says from that day forward, Esau did despise his birthright. But the sibling rivalry continued, didn't it? You remember one time when Isaac, the Bible says, Isaac was old and his eyes were faint in that he could not see. You know, I've tried to picture how come he didn't understand or how come he didn't know it was Jacob as an imposter really on that occasion. How did he not know that it wasn't Esau, or how did he not know that? But the Bible says that, that Isaac says to Esau, he said, I want you to go out and kill me some meat and bring back some of that venison. Bring me back some of that savory meat that I love so much, and I'm going to eat and be filled with it. And then when I'm done, I'm going to give you the blessing of the firstborn. And off Esau goes. I don't know how long he was gone, but he was gone long enough, but overhearing what was happening there was Rebecca. You remember the Bible says that Rebecca loved Jacob, and Rebecca comes to Jacob and and she says this, your brother Esau is about to receive his blessing, the blessing of the firstborn. He's out there trying to bring some meat in. He's going to bring venison or savory meat to your father and have the blessing. Go quickly now and get two goats from the flock and you bring them in and uh, I will prepare savory meat for thy father. And Jacob said, I'll never get away with it. Esau's a hairy man and I am a smooth man. He will reach back and touch behind my neck and find that I am smooth on my neck and therefore he'll know it's me. He said, and if I try to deceive him, he's going to know it's me. And not only am I not going to receive the blessing. I'm going to receive a cursing from him. And Rebekah said, let his curse be on me. Do as you're told. And he does. And the Bible says they took those skins with the furs and she put those on his hands. And she put it on the back of his neck. And here he comes with the savory meat to bring to Isaac. And he says, here, Father, it is, as I paraphrase, here's the venison that you wanted. Here's the savory meat. And he's going to eat that, and he says, and then you can give me my blessing. And Isaac said, how can it be so? You sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. When he reached out and touched the hands of Jacob and found those animal fur skins, he said, you feel like like Esau, you sound like Jacob. Who is it? He says, I'm Esau. And he ate it, and he gave the blessing to Jacob. And we know the story. Esau wanted to kill Jacob, and Rebekah told him that, to flee and get away from that, and so on. Here's really the point, though. As they reconciled later on, in about Genesis, the 32nd and 33rd chapter, we find that they did reconcile, but their descendants still struggled together. And so, we find also that those descendants continued, as we find in the Exodus Uh, when Edom refused Israel passage through their land. Notice uh, Numbers, the 20th chapter, beginning in verse number 14. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. Thus saith thy brother Israel, thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt for a long time, And the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells, We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. And Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with a sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, We will go by the highway. And if I and my cattle drink of thy water, then I will pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, Go through on my feet. And he said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. The descendants of those at odds with one another. Edom, though you remember historically speaking, was finally subjected by David in Second Samuel chapter 8 and verses 13 and 14, where it says this, and David gat him a name when he returned from smiting of Assyrians in the valley of Salt, being 18,000 men. And he put garrisons in Edom. throughout all Edom put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. But then in Second Kings chapter eight and verses 20 through 22, that in the days of Joram or Jehoram, Edom revolted. And located south of the Dead Sea and built their cities in the cliffs. And they thought themselves impregnable and that no one was mighty enough to overthrow them. And that was a problem that rang true all the way until 845 BC when Obadiah the prophet spoke as he did so long ago. They thought, you know what we're going to do? We're going to revolt. And we're going to go make our cities in the cliffs. We're going to be hidden here. They'll never come and get us. We'll see them coming. And we're going to be uh, protected here. And no power and no might of man could ever overthrow us. For we are mighty in this way. But you know by 100 B.C. They were finally conquered. Many of them were forced to uh, to be circumcised and accept the law. Becoming nominal Jewish proselytes. And by 100 A.D., historically speaking, Edom as a race and nation was lost to history. Let me just very briefly give you the outline of the book. First of all, there's the coming judgment of Edom in verses 1 through 9. That Edom, though deceived by pride of her location, will be brought down. And that that destruction will be absolutely complete. That Edom will be betrayed by its allies, too. You know what people do sometimes when they think they've got friends? Let me just tell you this. In the world, in the flesh, we have people that we think are our allies. We think sometimes that we're going to be strong. Or, for example, we have something that we have to stand up for, a cause that we have to stand up for. Now, I'm not talking about members of the body of Christ who stand for truth and right and listen we stand together and we always will stand together and may we never be apart with regard to right and wrong with what you and I must stand for as the body of Christ as Christians but I'll tell you something else though you know what happens when you're in the world and all of a sudden you have to stand for a cause and you have allies and you got people backing you up have you ever been placed in a position in your life When all of a sudden, because you know their strength in numbers, and you stand there, you stand there strong, and you turn around, and your allies have left you. Have you ever had that happen? You turn around, and you're all alone. The allies of Edom, they thought that because of the strength of their allies, and because of the strength and power of their location... There was no way that they could be brought down. And yet those were prideful things that condemned them. Their allies left them. And not even all the wisdom and all the might in the flesh could save them now. Then Obadiah gives the reason for violence and unbrotherly conduct toward Jacob. He gives a rebuke of such. And then he says this in verses 15 and 16 where he speaks of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day that God manifests himself to overthrow his enemies. And I'll tell you this, though. When we have conduct toward each other that is not like it ought to be, we're going to answer for that. Sometimes people say, and I'm not trying to be repetitive. You've heard me preach this. I'll say this really quickly about judging others. We can judge. Yes, we do. We judge righteous judgment. We use the word of God. We consider thyself or ourself absolutely lest we be tempted and we have to have the right heart, spirit, motivation, intention, and all of that. When we stand in judgment over another without those things, we're going to hear the very same thing back on the day of judgment. The things that these people had done, we're going to hear it back in their literal destruction because of what they had done. And in the day of the Lord, that's the day that God overthrows his enemies, he did so. And the day of the Lord for you and I is the judgment day. And that's the day that God will overthrow his enemies as well. And we're going to hear how we had judgment over another on that day. I don't know about you, but I kind of think I need all the help I can get. I don't want to hurt myself on the day of judgment because I've judged wrongfully in this life. And let me just say one more thing, and I'll move on. You can stand for what's right. You can go to your brother, and you can rebuke him, and you can do so strongly. But you can do so with the right heart. You can do so with the right intention and the right motive that you want your brother to repent because you know what's coming down the line if they don't. Now, I'll tell you something. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. In fact, you know what Jesus said? He said, get the beam out of your eye so you see clearly to help your brother not just leave him alone and he leaves you alone no we don't leave each other alone we just cast out our own problems so we can see clearly to do what help our brother live the christian life third thing we find in this chapter in this book is the exaltation of israel over jordan uh, over eden deliverance and holiness will be found in mount zion not mount esau or mount seir which was the prominent mountain in edom The house of Jacob shall consume the house of Esau. The children of Israel shall possess Edom and surrounding nations. And the ultimate rule will be that of the Lord's. You know, the fulfillment of this prophecy was twofold. It was immediate with the literal fulfillment of it. Beginning when Edom's destruction began with the Babylonian invasion under Nebuchadnezzar in about 600 B.C., and we spoke of just a moment ago historically by what happened by 100 BC, and as they were finally destroyed, and by 100 AD, the people as a race and nation were lost to history, but there's also the ultimate fulfillment. Most likely coming with the Messiah, with Jesus Christ. For with his coming an establishment of the spiritual kingdom beginning at Jerusalem. And that deliverance and holiness did come from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. In Luke 24, you remember after Jesus was crucified and after he was buried, he rose from the dead on the third day and he was about to spend about 40 days with those disciples. And what did he say? He said in Luke the 24th chapter, he said, And that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in his name among all nations, beginning where? beginning at Jerusalem. Then it says that the ultimate rule will be that of the Lord's. Jesus said those words in the 28th chapter of the book of Matthew, and beginning in verse 18, what did Jesus say? He said, all power or all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And because of that power, because of that authority, he was able to say, to go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and then teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the world. In 1 Peter 3 and 22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. But finally along this line, The house of jacob the true spiritual israel did possess edom as the gentiles among them became christians where faithful gentiles are spoken of as being grafted into the stock of israel time will not permit us to go there romans 11 and verses 13 through 18. to support this interpretation you remember that in the old testament prophecy mount zion is used as a symbol of spiritual Jerusalem and that being today the church. And as Obadiah pointed out, the literal place of safety and refuge would be found on literal Mount Zion. Understand this, the only place that the child of God or anyone in the whole world is going to have refuge and security and safety is found in Mount Zion in the church. There is nothing outside of the body of Christ that is a place of refuge. Obadiah pictures two mountains. One is the counterpart of the other. One is in Edom is going to be destroyed. But all of those that are not going to be destroyed will not be destroyed because they found refuge and solace in Mount Zion. The only place that you can find that kind of safety. I'll touch on that one more time at the very end of our talk and I'm almost through. Stay with me. Let me just talk to you now about some lessons learned from the book of Obadiah. As we mentioned before, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16 and 18. You know, one of the things that's wrong with pride is it leads to vanity and it leads to a sense of independence from God. If I live my life in a prideful state or a prideful condition, if I elevate myself too highly and I am filled with all of my wonderful pride that is in me, I am really saying by my actions, I am demonstrating I don't need God. I can exist in my independent state with all of my pride because of how great that I am. Because of where I live, because of what I have, because of the friends that I hang out with, and so on and so forth. If I do that, then what I am doing is I'm demonstrating to God that I don't need him in my life. And that's not true. Just as Edom took pride in their geographical location, allies, wisdom, and might such arrogance God will always punish. In Isaiah 13, beginning in verse nine, listen to this. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, And the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. May we always, all the days of our life, be on guard against such pride. Second lesson, don't mistreat your brethren. That's something else we learn too. Don't mistreat your brethren. Everyone here has a family of some sort, some size. Maybe you've had a sibling. Maybe you've been married. You know what happens sometimes? Sometimes the people that we're related to, that we're supposed to be the closest to, we're the worst to. I don't know why that's the way that it is, but it is. We've all done that a time or two. We'll be on our best behavior in the eyes of the world But then when we get to the confines of our own family, the people that we're supposed to love and cherish and protect, sometimes we're the very worst too. Let that never be said among the people of God to themselves. Don't ever let that be said that we treat the people of God, we that are are the people of God, treating each other wrongfully. That was another thing that these people did that was wrong, that condemned them and brought down their destruction. In verse 10, Of the book of Obadiah, it says, For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And so we learn that how we treat our brethren affects our relationship with the Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12, But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ, and so may we always be careful of how we treat one another thirdly get this one don't rejoice in the calamity of another don't rejoice when something happens to another that's bad let's be real honest though right now have you ever done like I have at least once or twice I would imagine I imagine there's quite a few more I just can't remember but say you have an enemy And he mistreats you and he says things to you and he does evil against you and so on. You're trying to have the Christian attitude. You don't retaliate because we don't. Then all of a sudden something happens bad in his life. You know what you kind of say inside? That's the way. All right. Oh, that's great. He sure had that coming. And then we rejoice because something bad happened to someone else. That's another lesson that we find that we need not to do. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18 says, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, excuse me, and he turn away his wrath from him. You know, this Edom did when Judah was plundered in verse 12. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Thou hast rejoiced over over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Rejoicing in the calamity of another is a sin. And you know what else is too? You can't rejoice in their bad things that happen to them. But you know what else you're not supposed to do? you're not supposed to see that they're in need and pass by on the other side doing nothing to help them. You remember when Jesus talked about that? He said that there was a man and he was traveling on about a 15 mile road that descended some 3,000 feet. It was rough and it was rocky and it descended some 3,000 feet beginning with, at Jerusalem down to Jericho. He said this man falls among thieves And somebody comes and takes what he has, and they almost beat him to death, and they leave him for dead. You know what I think about? There are folks here that are from the same area I was in the Oxnard area, and you'll remember uh, what I'm talking about. But in the Colonia, uh, uh, Colonia area, you didn't go down there at night. That's a good way to get in trouble. You didn't drive down those streets. You didn't walk down those streets. It was a rough place to be. Well, this fella, I understand, is traveling on a road that's just as rough. And he falls among thieves. Here's my point. Two men pass by. One of them, surely he's going to stop. You know why? He's a priest, he's a worshiper of God, he's a worshiper in the temple. Surely he's going to stop and help this man. But he passes on. Passes on by. Then Jesus said there's a Levite. Oh, he's going to stop. You know why? Because he's a man that rolls up his sleeves. He's a worker in the temple. He's a helper. He's a man that's going to stop surely. And you know what the Bible says that he does? Jesus says he looks on the man and deliberately passes on the other side. It's wrong to do that. We don't rejoice when there have ill come their way, but we certainly don't pass on the other side doing nothing when we can help them. But not only did Edom pass by on the other side refusing to help, but she also joined in the attackers to loot them. Surely you've seen on TV down in LA something bad happens. Isn't that awful? People have their houses and they have their businesses and they have things of value in those buildings. And something happens that comes their way an earthquake, a flood, a fire some sort of tragedy in their life whatever it is and not only do you pass on the other side and do nothing to help not only do you rejoice in their calamity but how about the people that actually go inside their buildings and steal what they have that's what Edom did they joined in with the attackers and looted them we're getting a pretty good picture of why they were to fall let's never rejoice when our enemy falls Let's be there to help those that are in need. And surely, I don't have to say this to God's people, but surely we would not join in with the attackers and take what they have. But finally, and then I will be through, in the, in the time of divine judgment, God provides a means and place for escape for those who turn to him. In verse 17, Obadiah says that upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Today, spiritual Mount Zion is the place that we can turn. And let me just tell you this. I understand that you and I are in the flesh. I know that. But the place of refuge is the church. And let me just tell you this, too. I know that sometimes because we're in the flesh, maybe we don't always behave ourselves the way that we should. And we regret that. But I'll tell you this, too. We know that we cannot get to God the Father in heaven one day except through Christ, through his body being the church. And that's a blessing because it's the ultimate victory in heaven. But let me just say this too. When you have challenges in your life, when you have things that come your way that are difficult to handle, I'm going to tell you something else too. The church is the place of refuge. Because in the church is where God's people are. And though sometimes we don't always behave as we should, God's people are the greatest people in all the world. the reason for that, not because of our own conceit and our own pride, but because we go by a different standard. We ever desire and strive to be like Christ in all that we do. The church, Zion, is the only place of refuge, for as Obadiah said so long ago, for in it the redeemed shall be found. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10:30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7:30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.